Well, good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us, whether in person and online. I want to say happy Father's Day, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we want to say welcome as well, too. Just a quick note before we start. So last week, we wrapped up our Holy Spirit series, and again, for those of you who weren't with us, no big deal. But uh, a couple of emails I got this week, a couple of correspondence I got from people. Uh, I just want to remind you of one thing. The enemy loves lazy Christians. The enemy loves lethargic, apathetic Christ followers. When we awaken to what the Spirit wants to do in us and awaken what God wants, uh, the enemy takes notice. Uh, I've I've made a statement a number of years ago. I I don't think I've said it recently, but the closer we draw to God, the more important we come to the enemy. So for those of you who are part of our anointing service and just really, um, and again, it was so great to hear some of the stories people had and of God speaking to them and, and all that, which is great, but just realize the enemy does not like that, right? He does not like that. So in this past week, you perhaps may have felt uh, things not going the, w- the way you expected them to, or um, I don't want to say your world's imploding, but perhaps for some people it was your world's imploding. Do not be surprised, because that is exactly what takes place when we draw close to God. So I just want to throw that out there just to make sure that you know you understand that the enemy wants nothing more, especially in the early days of, of our trying to strive towards God, to kind of maybe find a way to tamp down on that and maybe try to discourage you in a way that perhaps gets us off of, uh, off the track of that. So just want to throw that out there. Also, just a quick note, uh, I turned the air conditioning down, so hopefully you all won't freeze. Um, I knew it was bad when Rick walked in with his winter jacket, so I thought, okay, I probably need to do something about that. And, and perhaps the fact that they were hanging meat in here as well, too, is my also... My other clue as well. Well, this morning we're starting off a brand new series on um, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, uh, this, this morning what we're going to do is we want to look at the background before we jump into the book. Because the background actually is really important to understand the actual book. So buckle up this morning. We are going to kind of go into the background of it, but also talk one of the main issues that the church in Corinth is wrestling with. So the question we want to start off with is, do you think like a Christian? That one is actually loaded with a whole bunch of kind of misconceptions, preconceptions, or just outright, I have no idea. But what's interesting is, is I would say to you that there is a way to think like a Christian. Now, when I say that, for some of you, that might mean, oh, this is how a Christian votes, or this is how a Christian dresses, or this is how a Christian behaves. And if you're asking those questions, you're asking the wrong question. Because what we have to always realize is whatever happens internal will find its way external. But first for us, we have to realize that we need to, uh, we have to look at how we think. Um, there's a, something called the, um, there's been a lot of studies recently, uh, and by recently I mean over the last several years, on the worldview of Christians. So Gallup, of course the Gallup poll, uh, uh, back in 2018 did this, came out with this article and caused a lot of controversy, but for those who are pastors or in the church, this shouldn't cause any controversy whatsoever. It said this, fewer than one in four Americans now believe the Bible is the actual word of God and is to be taken literally word for word. Similar to the 26% who view it as a book of fables, legends, history, and moral concepts recorded by man. This is the first time in Gallup's four-decade trend that biblical literalism has not surpassed biblical skepticism. Meanwhile, about half Americans, a proportion largely unchanged over the years, fall into in, in the middle, saying the Bible is the inspired word of God, but not, not all of it should be taken literally. Now, this Gallup poll came out in 2018, and by the way, just so you know, uh, the Canadian statistics are even worse than this. But the point simply is, 
is people who proclaim themselves to be Christ followers, we don't think in a, in a biblical perspective. Uh, George Barna, and somebody I'll be referencing a little bit more, um, he's kind of the guy that really likes to kind of uh, do tons of surveys and all that. And, and even Pew Research picks up on a lot of uh, Barna's work. And he says this, nearly 60% of Americans who regularly attend uh, Christian church say that there is no such thing as the Holy Spirit. They say the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. Now that was a carryover from last week's, uh, last series on, in regards to the Holy Spirit. But what this should tell us and what this should alert us to is there is a shift. Um, something called the American Worldview Inventory. This is again by Barna at his university there. But this is 2022. It's a little bit more recent, so hopefully we get, it'll give us a little more insight. And the insight is horrific. Uh, so the first thing it says to us, of an estimated 176 million American adults who identify as Christian, just 6% or 15 million of them actually hold a biblical worldview. Shouldn't be surprising, although it should be absolutely surprising. Right? So when people say the phrase, oh, we live in a Christian nation, or it was founded on this, or whatever, and again, I get all that. But you're really talking about the 1920s, 1930s. Like, that has not been the case for decades. But what's even worse, and this was the subsequent one to this, and again, as a pastor, I know this, but for you, uh, you know, welcome. But in May 20, uh, 24th, it said this, subsequent to revealing that American Worldview Inventory 2022 found that just 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. Now, again, this isn't surprising to me because I have conversations with pastors and I'm usually horrified uh, by the things they say, whether on social media or I'm just like, like, if you believe the Bible to be true, then these statements you are making are, are in direct contradiction to that. So I'm not quite sure how you kind of balance that out. But the reality is this is, this is where we find ourselves. So how do we end up here? Right? How do we end up here? There's a writer, podcaster, speaker I really like. Her name is Alyssa Childers. Uh, I've mentioned her podcast. If you're looking for a, a podcast, I recommend hers. She's probably, in my opinion, one of the best Christian apologists we have today, in, in, in my opinion. Uh, you, could, you could, you know, Josh McDowell's, some people's favorites and all that. She's kind of the new breed of Christian apologists that are not talking about the old view of Christianity in regards to apologetics, biblical literacism, but she's more of a postmodern apologist. In other words, talking about where Christianity has come. She had a great article uh, talking about a history of progressive Christianity. Now, it's important to talk about this because when we look at the fact that only 6% of Christians have a biblical worldview and 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview, the question you should ask yourself is how did we end up here? And there is actually a reason for this, and I kind of want to share it, give you a little peek behind the curtain. She goes, this is in her article, a few hundred years after Jesus' resurrection, a man by the name of Augustine, this is how you know you're a Bible college grad, so you don't say Augustine, you say Augustine, so just so you know, that's how the cool kids say the word Augustine, um, found himself sucked into a cult called the Manichaeans who believes in Jesus, use scripture to support the doctrines, and claim the founder was the spirit of truth. Jesus' promise would come after he ascended into heaven. Although Augustine was raised by a devout Christian mother, he became dazzled by the new and exciting promise that put a fresh spin on Christianity he grew up with. It probably didn't hurt that their beliefs permitted him to sleep with his girlfriend while pursuing his theological studies and perfecting his spiritual mind. Now, <clears throat> What's interesting is, and the reason I love the fact that she opens an article like this, is because this is nothing new. Throughout history, and again, I love Christian history. That is, I'm actually more of a historian than I am a theologian, because I think history, culture affects how we view the Bible. 
And what I love about this is that when people are looking around, if I say to you 6% of people have a Christian worldview, 37% of people, 37% of pastors have a Christian worldview, you're horrified, but I just want you to let you know, this is not new. And Augustine, who would be considered one of the premier Christian thinkers, I would say more in his later days as opposed to his early days as, as, as kind of example, um, he kind of caught up in this as well too. But the reason I've highlighted the fact that he was sleeping with his girlfriend is the point is that, that what is interesting is we tend to be, as human beings, we, we tend to try to find people who say what we already want, how we want to live. And this is especially true as Christians. As Christians, we say, I want to live this way. I want to experience this. I want to do this. Therefore, I'm going to get rid of these orthodox, stodgy, old-time Christians. And I'm going to listen to the new exciting brand of Christianity out there. Which, by the way, there is an exciting new brand of Christianity out there. She goes on to say this. The Manichaeans believed that the teachings of Jesus were incomplete. And that they had revelations that would usher in true religion for everyone. Um, in this way, they believed religion could, pro could progress beyond what was revealed in Scripture. In order to defend these ideas, Faustus, one of the uh, founders of Manichaeism, wrote against the reliability of the Bible. He would twist, reinterpret, or omit the parts of Scripture that didn't line up with Manichaean thought. This is true today. As I talk to pastors, as I look at uh, prominent writers, this is exactly true. Twist, reinterpret, or omit. I've said this before, and I've joked about this, but it's not so much a joke. But, you know, when I was growing up, you used to use highlighters to highlight your Bible, to highlight Scripture, right? And, and the really spiritual people would have, like, multiple highlighters, right? So, you, you know, ladies, if you're looking for a guy to marry, look at the, how many highlighters they have. If they don't have any, nah. But if they got multiple ones, nah, that's a keeper right there. I'm just, just throwing it out there. So, guys, go out and buy some highlighters and just display them proudly if you need to. But the point is, we don't use highlighters anymore to highlight scripture. We use Sharpies to get rid of stuff we don't like. Right? And that's the interesting thing about the Bible, is, is we wrestle with scripture. And I confess to you, and I've said this to you before, there are parts of the Bible I don't quite get. There are parts of it that kind of go, really, God? You want to add, leave that part in there? Fair enough. Right? So that's, that's really, it, it's a struggle. But there has to be, at some point in time, we have to say either the Bible is the revealed word of God, or it isn't. And this is where we elevate human intelligence over divine revelation. And again, it's a struggle we all have. And Augustine had it as well too, and the church has it as well. Um, she goes on to say this. After Augustine con Augustine's conversion to Christianity, he wrote a fairly comprehensive response to Faustus' attack on the authority of the Gospels. He wrote, and I love this, you ought to say plainly that you do not believe the gospel of Christ. For to believe what you please and not to believe what you please is to believe yourself and not the gospel. I've said this before and I'll just again repeat this. If God seems to hate the people you hate, that might not be God as much as it might be a mirror. Right? See, what we have to realize is the Bible is going to push us out of our comfort zones. And if it does not push us out of our comfort zones, then I would say to you that you're not taking the Bible seriously. Right? And again, we just had an entire series on the Holy Spirit, and this is part of what the Spirit wants to do, is he wants to take us and move us beyond, um, beyond our comfort zones, but again, not beyond Scripture. Right? Um, I said this in the series that a mark of a Spirit-filled or Spirit-filling Christian is your love for the God, Word of God. And again, it's not as... Um, 
sexy as the other ways of, of the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. But really, a, a truly fi- a Spirit-filled uh, believer of Jesus is just hungry for the Word of God. She goes on to say this. Back in the early 2000s, some Christian leaders got together to attempt to adapt Christianity to the postmodern mindset that was beginning to pervade culture. They were reexamining the methods of the church had been using uh, the church had been using to reach the word, the world, and questioning some of the more legalistic, hypocritical, and downright cheesy elements of modern evangelicalism. Just to be clear, I agree with this. I think to ourselves that we get to look at the methodology of reaching people. But in regards to the methodology, we have to always make sure that we don't change the the orthodoxy or scripture. One thing I've said um, a couple of years back, some crazy reason, I was asked to speak to a group of of of, of preachers. Right, they had asked me to kind of kind of jump in and talk to this class. And one of the things I said to them was, "I preach a orthodox message, but with a changing methodology." I don't mind using uh, visuals. I don't mind using Jamiroquai to have my, my quote video. I don't, mind, I don't mind all of that kind of stuff. That stuff doesn't bother me. But what we have to realize is whatever I teach you, I hope, and if I, if, if I ever step outside of Scripture, by all means, I'd love to have that email. Um, but I, I, I want to make sure that I'm always kind of staying within the boundaries that God sets out. Right? So what's interesting is, is back in the early 2000s, but just so you know, this has been happening since the higher criticism movement in the 1960s, but again, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But since the 2000s, uh, a group of Christians, Christian leaders especially, authors, speakers, writers, the celebrity Christians, the beautiful people of Christianity, right? They've decided, you know what? Christianity is getting a little stodgy. And it's not as inclusive as it could be, and perhaps we're misinterpreting it. And so they started kind of reexamining it. They call themselves the emergent or emergence, or you may have heard the phrase, the emergent church. As the emergence distance themselves from a Christianity defined by beliefs and creeds, this different version of faith gained popularity amongst those disillusioned and disfranchised by evangelicalism. This birthed a new kind of Christianity, which titled Brian McLaren's 2010 book. And so what happens is, it's not just Brian McLaren, but other books as well too. Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller, Love Wins by Rob Bell, The Lit- Lit- Liturgist Podcast, uh, uh, Richard Rohr's Universal Christ, the, the Enneagram, all these authors. And again, I could go to Jen Hatmaker and a whole bunch of other uh, individuals as well. I could call them heretics. Um, and actually, yeah, I will call them heretics. There, I said it. Um, but the point simply is, is they look at the Bible and kind of go, well, you know what? This is, I'm uncomfortable with this part. I don't think this part is, is very helpful, and therefore I'm going to now begin to modify and change it. And again, there's different ways of doing it, right? One of the things I like to do whenever I talk to somebody about Christianity, whether they find out I'm a pastor or, or just they're asking questions about faith, the first thing I want to know is, give me your definition. Right? Remember I've said to you that if someone asks you if you're a Christian, never say yes. First ask them what they mean by that. What, is, what does a Christian mean to you? Well, they're this, they're this, they're okay, okay. I get it, right? This is your, your, your perspective? Great. Let me tell you how I look at it. And the fact is, the church has had a really crappy track record of hurt and abuse. It's true, right? We've, we've done a really bad job in regards to how we've treated people. And pain and hurt are an incredible uh, interpret, interpretive tool in regards to how we then talk about the people who've hurt us. So, for example, if you've ever been broken up with, and I'm sure none of you have had that experience because you're all wonderful and, and, and all that, but if you've ever been broken up with, you don't talk about your ex in a way that is, uh, 
uh, you don't go, they're fantastic. And I really appreciate that text that told me they didn't want to see me anymore. I, I thought that was concise. And no, we don't. We, we, we tend to, we tend to you know, portray them as the villains, and, and perhaps they are, or perhaps you're just too needy. I don't know. There's a, there's a whole, that's a whole different conversation, right? But the, the, the point simply is, is that peop, the church has hurt people. Hurt people then hurt other people, right? That's just a, rela- a relational dynamic. Uh, one of the things we do in premarital counseling is, you know, just, just talk a little bit about your, your relational past. Right now, sometimes that 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 it's really important in the conversation. Sometimes it, it's not at all. Right, but the point simply is is that whatever baggage you have from past relationships, you will bring into the next relationship. Well, guess what? With your Christianity, the same thing as well too. However, you were hurt or treated, you will then take that and you will nurse that and you will actually begin to modify. So what Alyssa Childers does, and again, she does this in a lot longer context, but she says there's a reason why the church is now struggling with its identity. Who are we? What do we believe? And again, um, even this past week, I was listening, I I had a conversation with uh, David and Sarah talking about the Reformed Church in Canada and some of the struggles they're going through. And what they're going through is what everybody's going through. It's like, is the church welcoming enough and does it have to be? And again, I understand this. I, I believe that there are parts of the church that are not very welcoming to people. But that doesn't mean you get to modify what the Bible says. But again, we'll get to that. Um, one of the greatest and unspoken struggles of Christians is to reconcile what they truly believe with what they wish to be true. See, when Rob Bell came out with his book, Love Wins, and again, not to pick on Rob Bell, but man, that guy bugs me. Um, he basically said that, you know, everybody will get to heaven. Just to be clear, I wish that to be true. Why? Because I'm not a psychopath, right? I don't want people not to spend an eternity with God and whatever that looks like. I don't. And there are people in my life, very close to me, that that might be true to them. And I, and I don't want to think of that individual, those individuals, as not experiencing that. But then it's not incumbent upon me to go, well, you know what? Maybe I got it all wrong. Maybe there is a loophole that I don't know about, right? And so what happens then is then I begin to kind of say, hmm, Maybe I got that wrong because I love these individuals. I think they're really good people, as if that was what Jesus let, set, up, set up for us. You know, good people, nice people, right? And then, you know, like, which, by the way, is just maybe a, basically a form of Mormonism, but that's a whole different conversation, right? Like, like that's, that's not really what Jesus intended. So whether I like it or not, it's not really up to me. And, and again, Francis Chan's response to that, I think his book on, on that, I think is really well done. What you have to understand is culture will always be a pull away from the gospel. So what's happening with Christianity today, and we'll talk about postmodernism just in a second, is that, you know, back in the 1940s, 1930s, 19, up to 1950s, I'd say latter part of 1950s, we were at the center of culture. Christians got to tell culture how to live and how to, uh, uh, how to uh, behave. But f- since the 1960s to today, We've gone from the center, and if you would imagine culture as a large circle, we're in the center at that point in time. But over the, every decade, we get moved, moved, moved. Just to the point now, this shouldn't be a spoiler to you now, Christianity is now outside of the circle. We are on the fringes of culture. Our voice is no longer accepted. 
our, our methods are no longer thought as being true. And so our way, our value systems are now on the fringe. It should not shock any of you because as we see our culture, we see governments and, 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 and everybody else, we see the shift, right? But the thing is, this has been happening for decades. It's just now it's kind of reared its ugly head. A book, uh, again, George Bonner wrote back in 1980 called The Second Coming of the Church. He said this in the book, and I thought it was really interesting that he wrote this back in 1998. He said this, the second greatest mission field today, apart from the unsaved, are those identifying as Christian. Because what, um, what George Bonner realized in 1998 is he, by study, realized the drift that Christians were having. He realized that Christians were drifting from orthodoxy, and I use that phrase in, in the most um, uh, accurate sense I could, to neo-orthodoxy or, or, or progressive Christianity or however, wherever you want to have it. Now, let's just define postmodernism because, again, if you're a student, you, you've heard this phrase before. If Everyone's heard this phrase, but no one can define it. Let me just define it just with one slide kind of briefly. Modernism is another philosophical movement that was prominent throughout the late 19th and early 20th century. So a lot of modernism is where uh, gen, gen, uh, gen Xers, builders, boomers, we all come out of modernism, right? You millennials and you Gen Zers, you're the chaos theory in the whole thing, okay? You are, you are, <laughs> you're just so delightful, but you're screwing everything up. Okay, um, modernism is how we define the world. Modernism, modernism was empirical, it was scientific, and it was linear, right? Now, for some of you, like, that, that's horrific, right? I get it, right? But that was modernism. Postmodernism is a philosophical movement that, that impacted the arts and critical thinking throughout the latter half of the 20th century. Works in postmodernism tend to have an attitude of rejection or irony towards typically accept accepted narratives. Really important. So all, all the things that we had established, postmoderns came along and er, no, no longer, right? Now, I think it's important, and I think it's really important, every generation needs to re-examine the foundations of culture. I think it's really important. Why? Because you've got to own what you believe. But postmoderns came on and go, you know what? It's all garbage. I'm going to throw it, chuck it all away, right? And then we're going we're to build it from the ground up. Problem is, as they're building it from the ground up, faith is not a part of that. Right? Religion is not a part of that. And again, no matter where you are, whether it's school or work or whatever, you see that. Postmodernism typically criticizes long-held beliefs regarding objective reality, value systems, human nature, and social progress, among other things. So what happens is postmodernism really kind of first reared its head in the academic communities. Uh, Sartre, uh, uh, Derrida, uh, again, the French philosophers, they're the ones that were behind it. But it starts popping its head into the movies. So one of the things that's interesting about Quentin Tarantino, for those of you who know that is, he starts coming out with movies like Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs, I don't recommend you watching if you have a weak stomach and, and profanity is a problem for you. Uh, but Reservoir Dogs takes the common hell narrative of bad guy, good guy, protagonist, antagonist, and kind of goes, and turns it on its head. But it was the zeitgeist. It was the kind of like rallying cry of a certain generic, like, oh, Right? So whenever you watch a movie right now, the bad guy could be the good guy, the good guy could be the bad guy, or it's a whole mix of, you know, um, in between, right? But that's in the arts. Well, guess what? That trickles down into culture, right? So what's interesting is culture is downstream from the arts or academia. Politics is downstream from culture. The church has become downstream from that. 
by downstream, you know what I mean, right? It starts here and kind of goes, right? So the church is now affected by this stuff. While traditionally, back again, back earlier in the days, the church would be the affecting it. it would be, it, church would be upstream, but now the church is downstream. So understand that because we're going to take a look at the, at the church in Corinth, and I'm going to give you a historical perspective on them, but let's take a look at when Paul planted the church in Corinth. So in Acts chapter 18, we just have like a brief mention of when Paul goes, goes to Corinth because we're going to look at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and so therefore we have to understand when did Paul actually establish his church. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 3, it says this, Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in, uh, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived in Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Um, fun fact, this is the only time that uh, Aquila's name precedes Priscilla. Uh, after this, the next three mentions of it, Priscilla actually precedes Aquila. And according to early church fathers, it's because Priscilla became the actual pastor. Um, and again, just fun fact in, in case you're in curious, curious about that. Verse 4 says this. Each Sabbath, Paul uh, found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So Paul's uh, modus operandi, his, 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 his methodology was he'd go to a new place. He always starts off with a with synagogue, right? Paul is a Jew. So he's going to first start talking about the Messiah, about Christ, to the Jewish people. Hopefully, he's, his thinking is he has a better starting point with them than the Gentiles. Again, we see this in Acts chapter 17, right? Paul goes to Athens. It's all Gentiles. And again, remember what the, uh, Acts chapter 17, right? He has the Mars Hill address. He says, to the unknown God. Well, at the end of that chapter, what does it say? A few people kind of chuckled at him about the resurrection. But only a couple others said, you know what? Come back and talk to us. Nobody converted, right? So Paul starts off with the Jewish people because he wants a bit of an easier conversation. Again, I don't blame him at all. But look at verse 6. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. So there is a small Jewish population in Corinth. And as we kind of show you why, it's a very small population. The rest is predominantly Gentile. And so we see now in verse 9 and 11, this very interesting um, experience that Paul has with God. Paul, uh, God speaks to Paul and says this, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid to speak. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack or, and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of God. Okay? So that is really the, the founding of Corinth. And Paul only had a year and a half to start this fledgling church. What Paul would do is he would go in, he would get converts, he would minister to them, he would recognize the leadership gifts of some of them, he would mentor them closer, and then after a year and a half, he would leave. He says, okay, you're the pastor of the church, you're now the, this, you're now that, you're, not, you're the worship leader, you're the kids, whatever, right? And then he would leave, right? By the way, I was actually thinking about this. I'm not sure how great of a... a, a, of a of a system this was, but, you know, uh, what I like about Paul is, is Paul does not kind of pull any punches. Either you're going you're gonna to swim or you're going to drown, and it's really up to you. Well, as First and Second Corinthians tells us, they drown, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, Julie uh, Edenser, she has a great uh, commentary on she says this. In the Apostle Paul's day, Corinth had several nicknames. Should sound familiar to you. It was known as Carnal Corinth. 
Sin City or Vanity Fair. To Corinthianize a person was to corrupt a person. It was to take him beyond his moral limits. People went to Corinth to be Corinthianized. It was like a rite of passage. There was no greater insult that could be given a woman than to be called a Corinthian. By the way, insulting people and in, in, in kind of an old, old first century thing, just call a woman Corinthian and you're really making a lot of assumptions about her. Um, recent excavations have uncovered over 33 wine shops located in downtown Corinth which is kind of the equivalent to the cannabis stores that seem to be opening up everywhere, right? It was a Starbucks, now it's a cannabis store. Oh, it's a ghost store, now it's, like, everything's a cannabis store, right? Right next to each other, it's just cannabis everywhere. Well, in Corinth, it was wine. Now, not just wine shops, though. The wine shops featured lofted rooms. Travelers would get drunk with wine and then enticed into these lofts for illicit activity with prostitutes and other partygoers. More on that in a second. Ilion, the late Greek writer, tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown on stage in Greek plays, they were shown as a drunk. That's how the, the reputation of people from Corinth were. That even in, in Hollywood of the day, you'd always show a per person from Corinth as being a, 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 a drunk. Okay? Greek proverb is not every man who can afford a journey to Corinth. Ha! Huh. Why is that? Well, I'll explain to you. So I, I found some... Um, first and second century writers who talk about Corinth. Uh, a guy named Strabo, he's like, um, uh, he's like a, um, how do I say it? He's like a person who writes about, uh, hey, traveling to Corinth, this is what you should know. And this is what Strabo says. Uh, Corinthianos there, on account of the multitude of courtesans who were sacred to Aphrodite, outsiders resorted in great uh, uh Outsiders resorted in great numbers and kept holiday. And the merchants and soldiers who went there squandered all their money so that the following proverb arose in reference to them. Not, uh, not for every man is a voyage to Corinthianos. Now let me unpack that. Right? Again, it's first century Greek, what he's saying. It's basically that Corinth is a party city. Right? And those who like to go there are, 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 are ship uh, uh, people or, uh, or, or uh, veterans. Okay, uh, a guy named Pindar uh, in 122 uh, AD says this: Guest-loving girls, courtesans, and prostitutes serves servants of Pythio, Susan, in wealthy Coronos. Ye that burn the golden tears of fresh frankincense, uh, full often uh, soaring upward in your souls unto Aphrodite. Okay, I know it sounds very Shakespearean, but again, the point is, and just to be clear. There are two types of prostitutes. Uh, again, welcome to UCC. Um, in Corinth, right? A courtesan and a prostitute. A courtesan was an individual who would accompany wealthy business people to other events, then sleep with them afterwards. A prostitute is just there for the sleeping part. So just, I just want you to understand why they're making this distinction. And finally, Strabo also says this. tells us that there were uh, a thousand prostitutes were donated to the temple. So the, the, the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was the largest temple uh, to Aphrodite in the Roman Empire, but also the largest temple in, um, in Corinth. It's a uh, fun fact. I'm not sure it was that fun. But the word thousand there wasn't actually 1,000 people. They, the phrase 1,000 actually just meant a lot. As, as, cl as, as close as I've been able to figure out the exact number as if you could, but that the number is more like 3,000 uh, um, prostitutes and courtesans in Corinth. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, what's interesting is cities mean something, right? In the Roman Empire, Athens was considered the city of the intelligent, right? The religious seekers, and you, you'd go to Athens, and Athenians were known to be smart, 
right? If you were looking to the, uh, the jocks of the Roman Empire, you go to uh, Sparta, right? These were the warriors were, who were created, right? Well, Corinth was a city as well, too, but it was known for certain things. Now, what's interesting is um, one book I've always recommended and a book I continue to recommend is a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. If you're looking for summer reading, it should only take you a week to read. You might even read it in one day, but it's, in my opinion, of the non-religious books I can re- recommend, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death is number one. His Disappearance of Childhood, which is now almost a prophetic book when it was written, but it should be read, read today, is like number four. And Technopoly is number three, in case you're looking for some summer reading. Well, Neil Postman points something out that's kind of interesting. He says, you know, cities actually tell us something about culture. So he says this, at different times in our history, different cities have been the focal point of the radiating of the American spirit. We go, oh, that's interesting. So the first one he talks about is in the late 18th century, for example, Boston was a center of political radicalism that ignited a shot heard around the world. So in the late 18th century, Boston and Bostonians were considered the political activists, right? The Tea Party, all that, that happens in Boston. And, and, and all of America gravitates towards that idea. Everybody wants to be Bostonian, even if you don't live in Boston. Okay. Well, he goes on and says this. Mid-19th century, it was New York became the symbol of the idea of the melting pot of America. And we know that, right? So, you know, bring us your tired, your, 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 your home, your bro- like all these individuals, right? The New York Harbor, all of that. So New York captured the spirit of America, right? New York was like the place where you want to go for the melting pot about immigration and welcoming diversity. That was New York. They go, yeah, that makes sense. Well, he says this, in the early 20th century, Chicago came to symbolize the industrial energy and dynamism of America, right? So Chicago was, is, it was leading them um, the forefront of, of, of factories and, and production, and it was creating a lot. As a matter of fact, it can be argued that Chicago is really where middle class emerged at, at a faster pace in America. Well, guess what? All of America looks at Chicago and says, we want that as well, too. Well, he says this. Now, remember, his book was written in 1985. Today, we must look to the city of Las Vegas, Nevada, as a metaphor of our national character and aspiration. And this is what he says. For Las Vegas is a city entirely devoted to the idea of entertainment, and as such proclaims a spirit of culture in which our politics, religion, news, athletics, education have been transformed into entertainment. Okay, that's what he said in 1985. I would say to you that there's another city today that best captures the spirit today. And that is, of course, Disney World. Now, Disney World is not a city, but it is a city within itself. So today, Disney World has captured the current spirit of America, a place where childhood, extended adolescence, can continue without end. Uh, A place of fantasy where logic and reason have no place. It is a place tailor-made to create whatever experiences you want and looks to your definition of truth as a personal path to freedom in whatever form you decide. Now, where did I come up with this? Well, actually, this has been happening. This has been a conversation amongst academics now for about a decade. Uh, a guy by the name of Simon Goshik had a great article called The Infantilization of Western Culture. And look what he says. By the way, I have to give him credit because this is where the idea came to me. Tourist destinations like Las Vegas market excess, indulgence, and freedom from responsibility in casino environments that conjure memories of childhood fantasies. The Old West, medieval castles, and the circus. Scholars have explored how this form of Las Vegas-style Disneyfication has left its stamp on planned communities, architecture, and contemporary art. Now, what do I mean by, again, this is like, I thought we were going to talk about Corinthians. You will. You'll understand why this is important. 
what's interesting, what he says here, and what others have been saying is, is that Disney now really kind of captures who we are. They are what we would consider cultural leaders in our, in, in our society. Now, why that's fascinating to me is because it starts at a very young age. Right? It starts at a very young age because that's really how you want to change a culture. This is what um, the Babylonians tried to do to the Jewish people, right? They took the youngest, the up-and-coming males. They took them to Babylon to live there, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, right? And what do they want to do? They want to change how they think. And when they change how they think, they want to put them back into, into Israel because that's how you change a culture. Well, Disney gets that, right? And again, I'm not here to, to, to either defend or to... Uh, wag my finger. I'm just here to tell you this is what's happening. He goes on to say this. We, we've witnessed the rise of a therapy culture, which is socio- sociologist Frank Ferdie warns, treats adults as vulnerable, weak, and fragile when implying that their troubles rooted in childhood qualify them for a permanent suspension of moral sense. Now, this is important because when we look at, the, as you walk through 1 Corinthians, you're going to see something. Right? As I've already said, Paul only spent a year and a half there. Okay? Paul only spent a year and a half there. A great article by Eric Geiger says this, three characteristics of childish, childish Christians in your church. Right? First one, childish Christians look to their shepherds, celebrities, rather than the shepherd. We are seeing in, in the church today uh, a lot of scandal. Prominent leaders falling, failing. And of course, as Christ followers, we are left to ask really some awkward questions. Right? And I think one of the questions we need to ask is about power and power imbalances. How do we handle power? How do we understand influence, affluence, all these type of things? I think these are great conversations to have. But the unfortunate part of it as well, too, is that when a prominent Christian leader falls, then we ask ourselves a question, well, is God real? This individual who I looked at and their teaching and, and, and all of that, well, if they could behave this way, act this way, well, that, then, then that kind of upends my faith. I would say to you, just as gently as I can, you're looking at the uh, you're you're looking at the shepherds as opposed to the the shepherd. And again, it's kind of an important distinction. He says this: childish Christians drink from a bottle rather than uh, dine on the word. Um, we had a visitor to UCC. Uh, I'll say a while back, so you can't know when they when they came. And they said to me something after the service. They said, "Wow, I, like I didn't realize I was going to say in a Bible college lecture for your sermon." And I said, wow, thank you for thinking I'm that smart, but I'm not. But I, I appreciate you thinking that. He goes, I said, he goes, our church, you know, we have a 20-minute <laughs> sermon, you know, and it's, it's this and that. And again, I get that, right? The, the whole seeker-sensitive movement and all that. Again, I think it came out of a good place of trying to convey the gospel in a more clear way to culture. I get that. But if you've come to UCC, you've been part of UCC, you know that what we do here would not fly anywhere else. Like, I just could not get away with it. Right, um, I, I like one one person from our district office said, "Would you ever be interested in another church?" Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. But I said to them, "I think I'm too feral. I don't think another church would accept me. I, I think you should probably not think about me for any other church because I don't think any other church is going to accept what I do." Now I know you're thinking to yourself, "Well, I don't think it's that crazy. It's because you're used to it, right?" I just want you to know that that sometimes visitors will say to me that, "Ah, that's a lot of content," or "Oh, that's like again." One of my presuppositions, I've said this to you before, I believe the problem with Christians in the church today is not that they don't believe in God or, or believe in the word. They just don't understand. 
I believe that the Bible is one of the most beautiful documents I've ever read, and the harmony of it from the old to the new is astounding to me, but God is consistent. I don't have the Old Testament God or Pauline Christianity. I just have the revelation of who God is. So my responsibility to you, I feel, is to teach you something that I, th- I hope you, I, I hope, well, I hope that you don't go home going, what the heck was he talking about? But I fear that may be the case sometimes. But my hope is that whenever you leave a t- uh, one of our sermons, that you'll go, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't realize that. And, 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 and in little ways, I hope to help you to really, I just want, I want you to love God's word. I, I do. I don't want you to like me. Well, that's easy, right? I, I don't like want you to like UCC, like, like we're, just, we're just an organization, a group. But I really what you want is I really want you to love God's word because if you understand in the proper context, there's that word, it's beautiful. And there is not a situation, not, a, not an issue in the world today that the Bible does not address. But I do think that pastors with a 30% biblical worldview have done a really, really, really bad job of, of conveying that. I, I, I do. So that's one of the things you need to understand about this idea of childless Christianity. And finally, childless Christians consume rather than contribute. It's no wonder that our churches look more like malls than they look like cathedrals. Now, you can argue the cathedral seems kind of stodgy, but there is an idea behind it. Well, it's no, it shouldn't come any surprise to us that churches now look like malls of, of like one-stop religious shopping as opposed to kind of what it was the, the idea intended one of the things that I'm trying to really kind of convey to you is that whatever salvation is, whatever Christianity is, it begins in the mind. Okay, so let me just kind of show you what Christianity does. So what we need to understand is that Christianity is really, it's, 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 I know this sounds kind of weird to say this, but it is a thinking process. It is a thinking process. So one of the things about a Christian worldview I'd say to you is this idea of focus. Philippians 4, chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 8 says this, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now, why this is so interesting is the word fix that Paul uses in the Greek there is this idea of an immovable object. What's interesting is, is that whatever Christianity is, I, I, I like the idea of, of, of our faith being a compass point. And I don't like the idea of using a map for Christianity. The reason I, I don't is because the fact is you don't know what your future holds. You think you know the path you're taking, whether it's school, you know, graduation, marriage, job. You think you know, but you do not. And if you think Christianity is like a map and path you're going to go, well, the reality is you will go off path more than you know that. When you're off path, when you're in the forest, when you're in the wild, a compass is much more is 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 much uh, more useful than perhaps a map. Right? Any map that you go to, remember you walk in the mall, you look at the map. The first thing you look at the map is not where Old Navy is or, or whatever you're looking for, right? Sephora or I don't even know what other stores there might be there. But the first thing you look on the map is you are here. Well, Christianity's like that, right? Christianity's a compass is you're here. And what the here is, this is, this is what you're meant to believe. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. So what's interesting is that Christianity is meant to be a, a, a focus. It's meant to be a direction, a compass point. And as we navigate the world, as the world becomes, becomes more and more transformed and changed, again, postmodernism, I would say to you that that compass becomes even more important. The true north of our faith is Christ. 
right? And the guider of, of that is, is the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about. And so we as Christ followers, we need to understand that. Like, I would say that we know more about culture than we knew about the Bible. I could play a game of, of trivia. I was going to, but I'm not, right? I, I could ask you, hey, you know, what's this celebrity doing? Or who's this person doing? Or what's the sports team doing? Or who, who is, like, I could ask you all these questions. And I think for the most part, many of you would know. But then I've, I could say to you, you know, another question about the Bible. And again, not that you have to memorize the Bible, because goodness gracious, I don't. But the basic concepts should be in place in your, in your life, or else really it's not going to be something you're going to understand. The other thing you need to know about a, about a biblical worldview is that it is gradual. So when you become a Christ follower, I do not expect you, nor does I know everything about, to, about Jesus. Right? I love what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by what? Changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Ephesians 1.17, asking God, the glorious Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom, insight, so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Like, I understand something very clearly, is that one of the things I love about the Bible is I am still learning. And as we go through 1 Corinthians, you're going to realize, well, you're not going to realize, I'll tell you, I've learned a lot about this book that I thought I knew. I've read 1 Corinthians multiple times, but when you study it, take it apart, look at it, kind of, you know, start chewing a little bit more, it's like, oh, I didn't realize that's what Paul was talking about. Oh, I didn't realize the context of this, of this book. So we all have to learn and we have to grow. That is what the term disciple really means. Disciple, discipleship, right? Submitting to the discipline of God. As, as a Christ follower, as you navigate this world, you come with some preconceived notions. Whether that's from your family, whether that's from media and culture, or whether it's just from your friends. But the fact is, if we take what the Bible says, or what, how God views us, one of our primary things that we are meant to do is we are meant to wrestle with the Word of God and understand it. And again, not that you don't have it all together, and I don't. I, again, I just want to make sure you understand something. There are parts of the Bible that I wrestle with. I still wrestle. The Witch of Endor, I still don't understand that story, and I'm not quite sure what's going on there. I, and I've read it, I've studied it, still don't know. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it, you'll figure it out, right? And you'll be confused along with me. Unless you have the answer, then please email me. I like to know it, right? There are parts of the Bible I don't get. But guess what? God didn't say to me, hey, just so you know, when you become a Christ follower, you're going to learn, you're going to know everything. Goodness, wouldn't that be great? Instead, I'm growing in that. And, and the beautiful thing is, whether you've been a Christ follower for a day, a week, months, years, decades, you're still going to grow and you're still going to learn it. A spirit filling. See, I didn't use the word filled as in past tense. Filling as in present tense. You see what I'm doing there? Okay, good. Believes, believer, a uh, spirit filling believer hungers for the things of the Lord and are not satisfied with what the world has to offer. Therefore, seeks to know and grow in God. You know, one of the, one of the characteristics of transformation in our lives is we start looking at the world and kind of going, you know what? It's not as sparkly and new as I thought. You know, I just, it's, it's, it's kind of actually, if you really look at the world and culture, it's kind of ugly. It's callous. It's unmerciful. It's, 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 it's violent. It's, again, all the terms, I, like, like of these are the, how I think of a culture, to the point now where I, I, I kind of look and think to myself, like, it really has nothing that I want. It doesn't offer me anything that really is meaningful. Or the word I like to use is transcendent. 
It, it just doesn't. And so what happens is if, if, if the church begins to kind of reflect the values and methodologies of culture, church kind of feels that way as well too. It doesn't feel transcendent. It doesn't feel other. Uh, again, the other is just spooky, however you understand it. It just doesn't, right? But again, that's not what God intended. And finally, I think what we have to understand about the Christian uh, worldview is it is countercultural. Second Corinthians, I'm not going to use any scripture from First Corinthians. Second Corinthians says this, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps us from knowing God. We capture their re- rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Now again, please hear me very clearly. This is Paul writing to Christians to other Christians. One of the things that Christians need to understand is we need to stop looking at the world as understanding what we're talking about and start understanding that we need, to, we need to treat the world as missionaries. And by missionaries, I simply mean is that we need to realize that the world no longer understands the language we use. I had a conversation with somebody who was talking about, it was at Christmas time, I was delivering milk to somebody, and they said, hey, you're a pastor. And like, I'm like, yeah. And like, so how does Moses fit into the, into the Christmas story? True story. I'm like, oh, how do you think Moses fits into the Christmas story? He's like, didn't he come with like a gift to Jesus and all that? Or, and all that? I'm like, oh. Okay, fair enough. Let's unpack that, right? Now, this, the point is, I didn't laugh in their face. I didn't, you know, make fun of them. But I just it just made me realize that culturally, biblical understanding is so far from what we understand it. And sometimes we have conversations with people, we assume they know what we're talking about. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they do not. And, 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 and the further we move away from that, we realize we have to talk like missionaries. And that's unpacking from a, from a basic concept before we even get to Jesus, right? We have to start with Paul to the unknown God, right? And that's just recognizing people have a spiritual hunger. Oftentimes when I'm talking to a person who has no faith background, doesn't have any Christianity, the way I start off with is talking about this, this idea within their spirits that there is something more. That's my starting point. You know, have you ever felt there's something more? Yeah, you know what, I, I, I do. Okay, that's the starting point I can work with. Right? But don't start talking about Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. That's like, you know, that's like Christianity 104 or 204 or 304, whatever, however you want to look at it, right? I just want to start off with a hunger. And guess what? If there is no hunger, there is no conversation. You ever try talking to somebody who doesn't care about Christianity about Christianity? How's that gone for you? They just look at you like, why are you talking about this stuff? I don't care. Right? You ever talk to somebody about what the Bible says about um, morality or ethics in the world? How's that gone for you? I don't recognize the Bible as being true. Uh, okay, got it. So what we have to understand is that Christianity is, again, so far in the fringes of culture that how we approach people who do not accept the Bible to be true is vastly different than it was even two decades ago. My wife was saying to me, so I was a youth pastor for 20 years, or a little bit more than that, actually. I, I loved being a youth pastor. Right? I still feel like I'm a youth pastor. How young are churches? But um, you know, I, I was a youth pastor. But what's funny is, I don't want to be a youth pastor today. I remember when I was first started as a youth pastor, and like you know, I haven't been a youth pastor now. Uh, seven, how, how old is you, CC? Seven, eight years? Eight years. I haven't been a youth pastor for eight years, and I am glad. Because in eight years, the world has gotten completely crazy, and I would not want to be a youth pastor in this time. I appreciate youth pastors. I mentor a couple of them. A couple of them reach out to me and ask me stuff, and I'm happy to help, but I'm glad to not to be a youth pastor. Why? Things have kind of... You know, I don't 
want to say people have lost their ever-loving minds, uh, but I do want to think. I do think that the that the that the anchor points we used to kind of use to navigate the world they're they're, they're a little bit uh, harder to kind to understand, right? But the point is that is that we are you know youth pastors are at the tip of the spears in, in many ways in regards to you know engaging culture and things have gotten really kind of messy. So how we thought should not be how we think. What's interesting is, is Jesus says something kind of interesting in Matthew 22, verse 37. He says this, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, what Jesus was doing is he was referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. But what's interesting is he doesn't say it the same way that Deuteronomy did. And there's a reason for it, right? So the reason why Jesus is talking to the Jewish people in Matthew 23 and 22 this way is because the Jews he's talking to live in Roman culture. They have been conquered by the Roman Empire, and they are now living in the Roman culture. The Jews of, of Deuteronomy were living in Jewish culture. This is why I think Jesus makes this subtle change. Because what does he say to the Jews listening to him in Matthew 23, 22? Right? You must love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But to the Jews in Deuteronomy, he says, God says to them, and you love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The reason Jesus makes the change is because he understands the Jewish people living in the Roman culture at that time now need to understand how do they live their faith out in a culture that is antagonistic towards who they are and what they are. The culture that doesn't recognize Yahweh, who doesn't recognize the prophets of old, the Jewish uh, social uh, relational ethics of, of Leviticus. So that type of faith needs the mind to be engaged in it. So let me... Uh, I'll, Ah, uh, so we worship God. Okay, fair enough. So there's four things you need to understand of Corinth. I'm going to wrap this up here. Finally, right? As we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, you're going to understand something. That Corinth is sensual. I use that word intentional because it's going to pop up several times. One of the things I need to warn you about 1 Corinthians, it might offend you. And that is good. Because what 1 Corinthians is going to do is it, it, Paul is going to deal with a culture that's very sensual. And, 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 and alcohol, and sexuality, and relationships, all these things are going to come up in 1 Corinthians. But as Corinth is sensual, I would say, and again, this is no shock to you, that I'd say Western culture is very hedonistic. Right? We live on something called the hedonic treadmill. Right? We just chase after pleasure. So as Corinth is wrestling with this, we are as well too. Corinth is immature. Right? Corinth is immature. They are, uh, they are baby Christians in, in a way that is just, it's just fascinating to kind of look at. Right? But I would say to you that the Western church, and again, as by all available metrics, we are babies as well too. We are children as well too. And this is why on social media, in the world today, we act and behave like children. Mine! Right? What does a child love? Mine! Right? What does a child love? Tell somebody else why they're wrong. How Christians have been operating on social media is, is, is an absolute travesty. There is nothing that turns a person off from faith more than a Christ follower proclaiming to those who are on social media that this is how it should be. When people on social media go, I don't even recognize your God. I don't even recognize your religion. But thank you for telling me how, how I'm going to hell. Right? This is immature Christianity. This is baby Christianity at its worst. And I think Western Christianity is basically being kind of, we have transformed the church into pleasurable, into consumer, into, into like, again, for those of you who are new to UCC, for those of you who are part of UCC, we do not, the worship 
on how we conduct ourselves, we do not care to entertain you. If you ever, you know, use a QR code to take a look at our update, I don't know how many of you do, you know, the first thing you're going to read on your update, welcome to UCC, you're not an audience and we're not here to entertain you. Now, that bites us in the, uh, uh, it, it, it bites us um, because people are looking for that. If you come from a church that's entertainment driven, you come to us, it is a bit of a letdown. Where's the lights? Where's, where's, like, where's all that? We, we don't play that way. And so, therefore, we're going we're gonna to kind of get that a little bit. So, you know, uh, you know, Corinth is immature. Corinth is struggling with transformation. Paul is going to talk to them. And one of the words he's going to talk about, and we're going to talk about this, I think it's next week, the week after, but we're going to talk about the gospel. Paul is going to use Corinth in 1 Corinthians to define the gospel. He's going to come back to it time and time again. He's going to say to them, huh, maybe perhaps you forgot the gospel. I've made the joke before, right, about, you know, Jesus's, you know, take up your cross. Sometimes I think feel like Christians have kind of dropped it a little bit. Just, let's just pick back up again. We are not here to be the overlords or tell people what's right and wrong. We are here to be servants. And that the first thing of a servant is, is, is humility. Right? It's, it's not about dominance. Christianity best understood is servants. And a servant is a person that nobody thinks about and, and, but is always there to serve. That's the, I, I find that to be one of the best analogies for Christianity. So Corinth is struggling with transformation. And finally, Corinth is trying to blend the gospel and culture. That's what we do today. Right? You know, oftentimes people ask me about sin, <laughs> of course. But the thing they're asking me, and the, they don't know they're saying it, but like, how far, how close to the line can I get before I'm sinning? What's negotiable, right? So oftentimes sin is just basically sin management. Right? Forgiveness is, is in management. I just, I just, I, I want to do what I want to do, but then how do I experience the forgiveness for doing whatever I want to do? Right? So Corinth is, is, is really struggling with that. Let me close with Galatians, because I'm not, I'm not going to touch First uh, Corinthians. The church in Galatia, matter of fact, many of the churches Paul planted are dealing with this. But look what Paul says. I am shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You who are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. It, 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 is, it is somewhat comforting to me <laughs> to know that other churches struggle with this because I think this is what we're dealing with today, right? What we want more than anything is we want to twist the Bible so that we can live how we live and again, not just, not just in the ways that we think. I'm, not, I'm talking about, you know, how we talk about UCC, your time, your talents, and your treasure. We believe at UCC, all these three areas belong to God. And that however you want to live your life, live it however you want. We don't, we're not the type of church that says, hey, this is how you should live. But we do think that every aspect of your life is under the lordship of Jesus, if we understand the gospel to be true. So when Paul says to Galatia, hey, just so you know, stop trying to twist the gospel to let suit your own needs. I get to go, yeah, that's kind of us today. But look at what he says in verse 10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. See, just at the very forefront as we kind of jump into 1 Corinthians, you got to decide, are you looking to kind of be an influencer in the world, to have lots of people following you on social media, or to be very popular, or, or to have these friends? If that's your goal, I, I get it. That's everybody's goal in Western culture. That's even Christians' goal. But Paul really kind of says something that's kind of important. I'm not here to try to please people, but I'm trying to be Christ's servant. Remember that word servant again? 
And so as we kind of navigate through 1 Corinthians, um, I, 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 I'm, just so you know, this series, I'm not pulling any punches. And not by pulling any punches, the text is not going to pull any punches. I, I will not change what it says, and I will not modify it. You will have to wrestle with it. But the question we started off with this is, do you think like a Christian? Well, the f- church in Corinth is, is going to have to struggle with this because Paul is going to highlight for them, this is how a Christian thinks. And because this is how a Christian thinks, this is ultimately how they will behave, or this is how they ultimately will navigate through this world. And I think it's kind of important for us as Christ followers is to really understand this because Frankly, I really believe that what the culture wants more than anything is not to like us, but to at least know why we believe what we believe. And then asking us then to live by what we say. If, 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 if you believe this to be true, then just, just live like it. We're not going to accept it. We don't care. But just at least be authentic to what you do proclaim as opposed to what they're seeing in, in the culture right now. Uh, I love having conversations with atheists, agnostics. I love having conversations with even hurt Christians, people who have left the church because they were hurt. Because in that moment, I get to kind of reassemble for them, if they allow me to, what an authentic Christianity can look like. And oftentimes, all I have to do, all I'm ever doing for people, is I'm apologizing for the church. Like, like, that's all I ever, that's all I seem to do. I, I just, and, and it really disarms them because what I'll say to them is when they tell me the story of how the church has hurt them or, or whatever, the thing I say to them the most, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry you experienced that. I'm so sorry someone said that to you. I'm so sorry that they treated you that way. I am so sorry. Because we as a church, we have not done a great job. But once you start that conversation in that way, then you get to say, by the way, this is the misalignment of what took place to you about what, about what the gospel has. This is the misalignment of what the world treats you to what God actually has for you. And that's a very different conversation. I know that there are people here whose friends and family have been hurt by the church and no longer attend church or even have anything to do with it. And I know that some of you, and you said this to me, you struggle with, well, how do you help that individual to know that? Well, the best way is to start off by saying, just so you know, this is what God intended. This is not what God intended. And from there, you have a different conversation. Do you think like a Christian? Well, 1 Corinthians is going to test you on that. It's going to test you on that. And again, not pulling any punches. The text is all there. You can read ahead. And you can, you can go, ooh, I wonder how he's going to deal with that. You will be surprised. I'm not going to make any. I'm not going to make any excuses for Paul. And I'm not going to uh, change what the Bible says. We have to, as Christ followers, say to ourselves, "This is what the Bible expects of us," and it's 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 incumbent upon us then to live accordingly if that's what we want. Let's pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You know. We never really think about our minds as being a place where the spirit wants to dwell. But what I love about early Christianity is that they believed that their thinking was was part of their spiritual journey. We have a tendency to believe that our emotional journey is more important. And again, our emotions are part of us, so absolutely. But our minds are part of what God wants to do as well. God wants to get a hold of our minds and say, hey, this is how you used to think, but this is how you now think. 
This is how you used to behave, but this is now how you do behave. And it's a gradual process. It's not all, all, all at once. But we really need to ask ourselves the questions, do we think like a Christian? And not a cultural Christian, not as the world sees it, but an authentic, spirit-filling follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus. And that is way more difficult than you imagine because there are going to be parts, and 1 Corinthians is definitely going to challenge us. They're going to show us parts of our lives where we realize we're not thinking like a Christian. And because we're not thinking like it, we are not behaving like it, and we're being inauthentic to God's plan for us. And my hope is that as we journey through 1 Corinthians, you'll ask some questions, but you'll be very clear of, of what God intends or what God expects. And in doing so, your compass will, again, point to the true north, who is Christ. And, and, and thought and action and deed. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you have not left us as spiritual orphans, that you've given us your Holy Spirit. And what the Spirit loves to do is the Spirit loves to take the Word of God, the Bible, and make it real to us. As we talked about last week, the, the most truest form of revelation is when our head and our heart agree. And so, God, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, my prayer is for each person, and I include myself in this, that, Lord, that we would have revelation moments where our head and our hearts agree on what you say. Lord, let us not come to you with our preconceived notions of what you think, but, Lord, let us instead accept in humility what your word says. Lord, I pray through the series that we would transform, we would change, we would grow in however you want us to, Lord. Spirit of the Most High God, I pray that you would grab a hold of our minds and begin to point out, show us, reveal to us areas that we have re resisted you or perhaps have allowed culture to influence us more than you. I thank you, God, that your word is clear on all the things we will talk about, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name that we would do so with humility and as servants.